Barry Creighton continues to provide fascinating insight and reflection of an extensive career in this companion episode of the Stages podcast. He examines the craft of writing in regard to the many forms in which he has written. Fiction, comedy and farce, film, theatre, review and radio drama. A period working in London allowed him opportunities as a broadcaster with the BBC World Service. And theatre gigs that included productions of David Williamson's Don's Party at the Royal Court and a national tour of Ronald Miller's Abelard and Eloise, a play that restored his confidence as an actor. Recent activity has seen him work with LA Theatre Works and Blackstone Audio, adapting and sometimes performing in a series of audio productions of classic texts. He continues to write and develop screenplays and remains a picture of health. There's a picture in an attic somewhere. Through a committed discipline of regular gym activity. Creighton serves the roles of actor, director and writer with tremendous ease, extensive knowledge and immense charm. To be in his company is a joy to be treasured. He is generous, warm, witty and ready with a mountain of anecdotes that delight, inform and endlessly entertain. I think my first encounter of you was as a favourite panellist on the game show Blankety Blanks. Was it as much fun as it looked? <laughs> oh, it was great, great fun. It was like going to a party every week. Um, it, really, we laughed so much doing that. Uh, I had just come back from London after spending I had nearly 12 years in London, and Nolan was the one who, who said, you, there's this panel show, you've got to do it, it's wonderful. And indeed, I look forward to that every week. We all did. We just look forward to being there and, and laughing. And Graham, of course, was, was wonderful. Um, that, was, that was really great fun. The show had a brilliant cast, of course, Stuart Wagstaff and Dave Gray and Carol Ray and a lot of those Bramston uh, personalities. It was it a golden did, age of yeah. celebrity and talents, I think. Uh, it, it probably was. Um, the other thing about it was that the business was, it was smaller when I started out. You got to know everybody in it. Um, as the business has expanded and the population of the country and all of those things, um, you know fewer people in the business and the public consequently knows fewer people in the business. And I think that was the point of, uh, of Blankety Blanks, that everybody knew people who were in the show uh, on the panelists because of stuff they'd done. Um, it was like, who was the guy who ran the Seven Network um, uh, said once, he said, familiarity doesn't breed contempt, it breeds love as far as television is concerned. And that's, that's the truth, I think. Yeah. And I, the other thing, the, the reason, uh, just going back to the Bramston show, the thing that I've always maintained about that, why it worked so well, was because we all looked and sounded like establishment people doing anti-establishment material. Mm. I think it had been a sort of university undergraduate review where everybody looked scruffy and said all of these controversial things, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But because we all sounded so posh, it made double the, the, the impact that, that it would have otherwise. Well, we consume product in a myriad of ways now, you know, with streaming and, and downloading. Do, do you watch much television nowadays? What choice have I got locked in the house? <laughs> <laughs> Prior to the yes. plague. <laughs> I, uh, I, watch, I watch television if it's good. I think the wonderful thing that's happened to television is streaming television because we get to see a lot of foreign product. I mean, I'm addicted to Spanish series at the moment because I think they're making the best television in the world right now. 
American television is still very cautious, of course, because networks in particular depend on their sponsors and their advertisers, so they can't be too bold. And even cable television is becoming old hat because you have to still watch an episode of something every week. The wonderful thing about streaming television is you can watch three a night if you want. You can binge. That's Yeah, absolutely. And of course, at a time like this, uh, when nobody's going out, it's, it's a great thing to have at your fingertips. You hosted a show in 1969 called Hard Day's Week. I've got a track mm. here called If. Do you want to set that up? I course? love that. Yes. Um, I did a lot of numbers, particularly the ones that um, David Sale used to write for Bramston, which were pattern numbers. Um, they were name-dropping numbers, which always sounded, I could do them quite well. And this was a number, and I can't remember the review it was in. It was probably in one of the Monk reviews. Uh, called If, and it was all about, um, it was rhyming names. And they changed all of the names for me to topical names uh, in Australia at that time. And I still think it's a very funny number. Jackie Onassis ever marries Graham Kennedy, she'll be right back where she started. If, 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 if Betty Gordon had married J. Paul Getty, then Betty Gordon would now be Betty Getty. If Delilah had run after Arthur Ryler, just think she could have wound up as Delilah Ryler. If Faye Emerson had gone for Johnny Ray, before the wedding was done, we'd have another Faye Ray. And if Lola Decavere married Emil Zola, we'd all be reading the Paris News today to see what Nola Zola had to say. And now if Dawn Lake had gone for Ronnie Fraser and Miriam Carlin had gone for Bobby Lynn, well, the sound of music would star a new Dawn Fraser and by Heckler would star Bobby, Debbie and Mim. If Maureen O'Hara had gone for Steve McQueen, we'd all have gone and seen Maureen McQueen on the screen. Now, if you join Mia Farrow with her Scalia, well, then Mia Galea would be her legal name. And Rosemary's baby would never be the same. And now, if Tony Bonner should go for Honor Blackman, and Miss Honor Bonner should be for better or worse. And if Ishka Bibble had gone for Sybil Thorndike, well, she could have wound up as Sybil Kabibble the first. And if Lady Lloyd Jones hadn't been quite so well read, she'd have married John O'Grady and been Lady O'Grady instead. See, it only takes a little imagination. And mine's the kind that simply can't be quelled. Everybody sing! A Sunday's child is fed a face, a Monday's child is full of grace, a Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week. Believe me, what can I do for you, Miss Tuesday Weld? Barry, of course, you live in La La Land, uh, the yeah. home of the film industry, and you're a most extraordinary guide for anyone who, who visits. Did you intend the cinema much as a child? And where did your passion for world cinema and Hollywood begin? I think probably when I was young, because I thought there's got to be more to, uh, even at a very young age, I thought there's got to be more to uh, a relationship than people singing, sleeping in single beds, which is all the senses would allow you to see from an American picture in those days. And I think the, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I found the one cinema in Brisbane, miles from where I lived, showing foreign movies. And I saw French Can Can, which had an explicit relationship uh, between the two people that are, you know, in the same bed, for God's sake, and Anna with um, Silvana Mangano. And these 
this is where eye openers to me because these are these are films that that should be made in America and yet they were infinitely better I think. But I went to see all of those when I could. Um, the matinees at His Majesty's on Saturdays, and the movies whenever I could. Uh, I could get to the movies. And curiously enough, uh, the uh, movies. While I'm passionate about the history of film, and write about it these days as well for a magazine here, um, I st never became greatly enamoured of appearing in film on film. Television, yes, because there's a linear aspect to television. Uh, film is a lot of waiting around and disjointed, and you never really develop a character, you make it up as you go along. That never appealed to me. Whereas theatre, which I've always loved, the very one of the great joys of theatre is that you get to do it eight times a week and perfect it as you go along. You were also a great fan of film scores. I guess that's the, yes, I uh, am. the, the composer in you. What is it yes, about it is. a film score which, which appeals? It's descriptive. It's it's um, 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 program work, obviously uh, orchestrally. I'm, I go to lots and lots of concerts here because I mean, my passion for music is great and it's just become greater as I get older. I think film scores are the, some of them are the great symphonic music of the twentieth century, the classic era. The scores of Bernard Herrmann uh, and um, Miklos Rozier and Franz Waxman, all of those people are great symphonic scores. Uh, they stand alone, many of them. I mean, the, the score for uh, Casablanca, uh, the score for Gone with the Wind, they're all great, great orchestral pieces. Uh, descriptive, yes, but I think they're great works, and these I, I collect with a passion. Um, I, I, my, one of the reviews I wrote recently was for a reconstructed uh, Hitchcock, Psycho, in which the uh, L.A. Opera Orchestra played the score live while the film was, was showing. Wow. And that was an exciting event. You're writing screenplays as well, I know. And I know I that am. you're a great fan of directors like Alfred Hitchcock. What, do, what does Hitchcock teach you about screenwriting? Construction um, and manipulation. All good theatre, and, and film for that matter, is about audience manipulation. And playing comedy, which has always been my favourite thing, of course, um, you are manipulating the audience. You're the one in control, playing comedy in particular. And if a play is constructed badly um, and you allow this to be seen by the audience, you've lost them, you lose them. Hitchcock was a great, great, um, great master of construction, as was Noel Coward. And I think I mentioned to you long ago that I met Noel Coward in London socially in 1970. And I said later, it was like meeting God, except that Noel Coward had a better sense of construction. <laughs> What about people like Billy Wilder? Who were who the, the great yeah. practitioners that you admire? Billy Wilder, certainly. I admire his stuff. I mean, he's written some of the funniest lines. This is, again, someone like Tom Stoppard, who's come to English as a second language. Billy Wilder didn't speak English when he came to this country, so he recognised what was funny about the language. Uh, similarly, Tom Stoppard has written some great gags in his serious plays. Uh, didn't speak English till he was nine years old. I think that's probably an advantage writing comedy. Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot has got to be one of the greatest comedies ever made. I agree. And you think about the, 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 the lines in that that you can just extract from it that still work when Marilyn Monroe says, real diamonds, they must be worth their weight in gold. It's one of the funniest <laughs> lines ever written. It is, it <laughs> is. Well, your c cinematic knowledge is, is immense, and uh, I think that comes to the fore recently in a novel you wrote called Murder is Fatal, which I just yes, adored with the number of references to the 
film noir genre and uh, a yeah. multitude of films. You know, I, I co-wrote a screenplay first uh, called Murder is Fatal uh, about some poor kid of 28 years old who's a movie buff who gets caught up in his own film noir. And um, it was, so many people thought, oh, how terrific. And in those days, like 12, 15 years ago, um, everyone said, but it's too expensive because it was lots of location, lots of spectacle. And so it was shelved for a long time. Then I thought, I'm not going to let this go to waste. So I derived a novel from it, which was received very well here. And interest in the screenplay popped up again, because now we have endless uh, drone shots and CGI and all those things that, that can make up from uh, what you usually spent on sets way back when. So who knows? It may happen. It may not. A good deal of your career has consisted of writing, plays, parody, lyrics, novels, reviews, screenplays. How do you find your muse? <laughs> Sitting and looking at a blank screen for long enough until something happens, I guess. I'm not a prolific writer. That's, I've got to be very sure that what I'm writing is... Maybe it's the, the, the inferiority thing that was instilled in me uh, at a very young age. I've got to be absolutely sure that what I'm writing is going to work or I don't want to put it down. I don't want to start on something. My method of writing is to know exactly what you're going to write before you start. Um, I so often speak to young writers who say, oh, I'm just starting out on something. I don't know how it finishes, but I'm, I'm letting, letting it go where the characters take. Well, you can't do that. You've got to, for instance, my fast Valentine's Day, um, I wrote the last 20 minutes of that before I wrote the beginning of it because I knew where it had to go eventually. And I had, for instance, in Double Act, I had the final scene in mind long before I wrote the first scene. Um, again, because I, I knew exactly where it had to go, and if it didn't go in that direction, it wasn't, it wasn't the play. But it's, it's something I don't do as often as I like. I think because of that feeling of I don't want to write something bad or half-assed, I simply want to get it right, right from the start, you know? Yeah. Um, are you disciplined? Is it a, a disciplined part of your day where you have to sit and write? Once I start, I become obsessed by it. I, I mean, I literally chain myself to the desk and get on with it until it's done. Um, just um, recently, a New York producer uh, paid me a lot of money, I'm happy to say, uh, to do a treatment for a historical series set in ancient Carthage. Uh, here's a series about the Phoenicians, about Hannibal, about uh, the foundation of Carthage and so on. And that was a labor of great love. But once I started on that, I couldn't let the research go. I mean, I was stuck upstairs in my office, pouring over historical research and the battles of Hannibal and how he won them, the strategies. And um, that was a joy to do. Similarly, the, the screenplays of mine that are out there now, once I start, I, I, I can't stop. It's not as though I sit down every day and think, what will I write? today. That doesn't happen to me. I've got to have the idea first. Then I become obsessed with getting it done. What's your workspace like? Do you have many distractions or is it just the, the, the computer in front of you? And No, it's um, uh, you haven't seen, of course you've been to our, our old house, haven't you? The nice house we have. Yeah, I haven't seen it in your office, yeah. No. Well, the house we're in here is as, as large. It's a jolly nice house, but they had a vast attic, which was, I mean, really vast attic, it's half the size of the house, uh, which was unused. So we finished that, it's carpeted, and my desk is up there, my, my computers, my reference books, they're all upstairs in that uh, office space. So that's a joy, because it cuts me off from the rest of the house, um, which I think is essential. I think long ago, when I lived in a 
the rented house that um, I did when I first moved to LA, um, the office was right near, it was a little bedroom right next door to the, the main bedroom, and I constantly found that at three in the morning, if I had an idea, I'd just walk next door and start writing it. I'm prevented from doing that in a house like this because <laughs> I have to go upstairs to do it, uh, turn on lights. But yes, it's a good space to work in. How hard is it to write a joke? Um, do, does that all stem from a character set up? And I, the best jokes I think do. I, if the character's not right, the joke doesn't work. You can't just. I've seen some. For instance, I think one of the funniest musicals ever uh, put on a stage is a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Oh, I agree. Now that has the that has the oldest jokes in the world in it. The oldest vaudeville jokes in the world are in that that piece, um, and I've seen it done so well uh, in New York twice in Australia when it was first done, and then we saw an, uh, a little fringe production of it here, which is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, because they played it for the jokes. They played it, um, here, I'm going to tell a joke now, and it was yeah. all out front, and it was, it was so wrong, and it was just not funny. Jokes, uh, again, you go back to construction. You think of the way Noel Coward uh, wrote the final lines, the punch lines of his 6-8 patter songs, the, the jokey songs, the songs like um, uh, Why Must the Show Go On, or uh, those ones that had a 6-8, uh, you know, tempo. Uh, he, they always go in threes. He'll start with a, a set-up line, uh, an intermediate line, and then the punch line, and that's the way a joke works. Yeah. If you don't have that setup, it doesn't somehow. They always go in threes, and it's like a good play it should be three acts, even in the mind of it's two acts on paper, that's another thing, but in, the, in construction, you've got to have setup, conflict, and resolution. It's always three acts for a perfect construction to me. When a joke may not be firing or landing with an audience, do you find it easy to let go of that gag, or, or do you continue to refine it during a run? I would bash it to death to get it to work, I think. I remember when we first did uh, <laughs> Double Act in uh, Sydney, uh, there was something was not working in the first week we played it. And I kept insisting, it was in the second act. And I said, it's, we've got to search for where this joke starts and why it's not working now. And we had to go back to the first act to find that it was uh, a couple of lines in the first act. If they were done incorrectly or they weren't phrased the right way, the payoff in the second act didn't work at all. After that, that had worked like a dream. Well, the whole show worked like a dream, which was nice. Can you go too far with the joke? Yes, you can. Of course you can. You can, you can bludgeon it to death, I think. I, it, it's difficult to say. Playing a joke is, is, is different from writing one. Writing one, you hope it'll work. Playing it, you've got to know how it works or you're dead. I, I think, it, yes, joke is a good word. It's a good way for saying how do the gags work. It's always the... Well, you've got, for instance, in Double Act, um, the productions I've seen of it around the world, the laughs have always been in the same places, apart from two disastrous productions, which we'll probably go into. The jokes are... All, the laughs are always in the right right place, and that's when you know that it's working, even whatever, whatever the language is. I remember when I saw the Berlin production of Double Act, um, I don't understand a word of German, but the jokes worked. The laughs are all in the same place. And that's very reassuring when you know you've written them uh, in a totally different language. 
Well, as a curiosity, let's listen to a brief section from the play. It's, uh, I've first got the English version, and then we go into the French yeah. and German productions. And it's the bedroom scene, isn't it, from Double Act, your big It's hit. the very first scene where, the, yeah, after the, a divorce of five years, um, uh, the two characters go to bed for the first time, and it's a desperate failure. And I thought it was interesting to listen to our original production from 1987. And then listen, I dragged out recordings that I'd been sent of a French production and also the Berlin production, and the laugh is in exactly the same place. It's me, isn't it? No, 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 it's me. No, it's me. I'm not as attractive as I used to be. <laughs> Am I? You're a very intelligent woman. <laughs> I may punch you in the mouth. Oh, you know you're attracted. Does what's his name ever have any trouble? Never. There you are, then it's me. C'est moi, n'est-ce pas? Non, bien sûr que non, c'est moi. Non, 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 c'est moi. Je ne suis plus aussi attirante qu'avant. Non? Mais tu es formidablement intelligente. Oui, mais je peux aussi te mettre formidablement mon poing dans la gueule. Mais écoute, tu sais bien que c'est moi. Est-ce que le Yeti a déjà eu des défaillances J'en ai. Non, alors c'est moi. Es liegt an mir, oder? Nein, 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 an mir. Ich bin nicht mehr so attraktiv wie früher. Oder do you find that um, audiences around the world differ much? I, I guess not if they're laughing in the same place. They do, depending on the sense of humour. I'm one of those either that's lucky or cursed with having both the British sense of humour and the American. Uh, for instance, Alan Akebourne works so well in England. I mean, he's like a saint in England. No, nothing of his can fail in England. Uh, Alan Akebourne doesn't work in America. People say, what the hell is this about, you know? Um, similarly, Neil Simon's plays don't work in London. That, you know, one-liners and the gags, the wisecracks, don't work in, to a London audience. And that's something I've been very aware of. My writing has become, I think, more American than it is English. Uh, obviously, because I've lived here for 30-some years. And my understanding of the American uh, sense of humour is considerable now. Not, not only that, but my respect for it. I think, was, I think the wisecrack is one of the great... The American wisecrack in particular is one of the great forms of, of wit in the world. Um, you've only got to read Raymond Chandler, and those lines in, in his novels, which all of them have gone into films, are some of the wittiest lines in the world. Um, uh, she looked good from 20 feet. When she got closer, I saw that she was made up to look good at 20 feet. I mean, it's a great line. And <laughs> I said, will you take a drink? And she, she said, sure, I will. And he said, uh, she's the kind of girl to uh, take a drink if she had to knock you down to get to the bottle. I mean, there's wonderful lines, and they're very American. Uh, and they're part of the whole American, I don't know, uh, nature is, is, is the wisecrack. I love it. I've been watching reruns of The Golden Girls recently, and I'm amazed at how much it still holds up 40 years later. Oh, yes, it does, because what they were doing was timeless. It didn't have to do with the period. 
Uh, what they were doing was they were timeless. It was a wonderfully written series, I thought. You're a funny I, man on and off the stage. Um, who are your comic <laughs> heroes? And what, and what makes you laugh? Uh, well, I'm a very good audience. That's the other thing. Uh, very, it takes, doesn't take much to make me laugh, I must say. I'm a laugher. I think, probably, who else? Mike Nichols, I respect and adore, and I still listen to his stuff, and it makes me laugh. If you listen, you know probably Mike Nichols and Elaine May's early oh, work. On, absolutely, absolutely. And there's a terrific yeah. HBO documentary on Mike Nichols also doing the rounds at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And if you, can, if you can get hold of Elaine May's uh, tribute to him at the uh, Lifetime of, uh, Award where she talks about his being Albert Einstein's uh, cousin, it's very, very funny. It's a beautifully written piece of comedy. But that's, that's timeless comedy. Um, anything that doesn't... I tell you what, what I, I had to review recently. I've been reviewing some stuff, and there was an evening of the American Dance Theatre. They did an evening of recreated Fred Astaire routines, which were quite, quite wonderful. I mean, they were so graceful and wonderful. And these were classical dancers doing Fred Astaire's routines with Ginger and everybody else he worked with. But they opened the show, they wanted the evening to look like um, a total evening set in the period of the movie, set in the late 30s, the early 40s. And so they had a stand-up comic open the show, which was a startling for us. And it must have been just as startling for the poor comic to be in front of a classical ballet audience doing gags. But he did one thing which nearly laid me out, and it was, he did a routine as a talking ATM machine as it would have been written by a playwright, David Mamet. <laughs> I was on the floor. It was hysterical. It was all that, you know, machine gun language. You want money? I'll give you money. You want money? I'll tell you what money is. It was that wonderful take on something. That's great comedy to me, when you can impose uh, a style or a genre and put it onto to regular everyday speech or something as, as trivial and as mundane as a, an ATM machine and make it funny. Has Noel Coward been an influence on your work? Oh, a great influence. Again, as a great constructor, but uh, he, uh, he, he was a genius. I mean, you know, this is a guy who I worshipped when I was young because I realised he could do everything, all of the things I aspired to do. He wrote music, he wrote plays, he acted, he sang. <laughs> uh, he did all of those things that I thought were pretty terrific. And um, as I said, meeting him was a joy. Uh, it was at my doctor's 50th birthday party and um, Coward, he was Coward's doctor as well. He actually was everybody's doctor. John Gielgud's doctor, Marlene Dick. Sometimes the waiting room was, was more fun than a West End play. Let's have a listen to a, a sketch that you wrote and performed, uh, Private Wives. <laughs> it won you yes. the Noel Coward International Writing Award for parody. It did. And that sketch, I wrote it originally for a Walsh, Mike Walsh show in about 1980, I think. And I did it with June Salter, and since then it's been done in half a dozen reviews around the world, and it was most notably in a review I wrote for New York off-Broadway, which ran for two and a half years, actually, and it was singled out by the, news, the Times and a couple of other papers as being the centrepiece of the show, because they say that it's cheerful salaciousness. <laughs> doing here? I'm on my honeymoon. So am I. You married again? So did you. Let's drink to each other's new beginning. Cheers. Down the hatch. 
God that that orchestra has a very small repertoire. Amazing how potent cheap musicians are. I think I'm going to cry. I'll ask them to stop playing. No, no, it's not him. It's the thought of you and another man. Cheers. He's looking at you. This is my third. Martini? Husband. There have been trois since moi. <laughs> Three since me. Yes, I, I haven't married wisely. But too well, yes. yes. Not once or twice like anyone nice, but again and, and again, again and again, again, yes. Salute! Mother, you're right. I must say you look beautiful in this damned moonlight, Amanda. Oh, please don't. I've just washed my hair. I never guessed there was another man. Three. I've had three. You're not just a liberated woman, you're a trifecta. <laughs> I'm afraid I still find you terribly, terribly, terribly attractive. Duke of Westminster's yacht. What's he like? The Duke of Westminster. On a scale of ten, three. No, 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 not the Duke of Westminster, your husband. Oh, he'll probably come popping out any moment. You can see for yourself. I want to hear it from your lips. Small. Yellow. <laughs> Oriental? Jaundice. Small. <laughs> your health. And his. Let's not talk of him. Very well. Tell me about yours. Tall, dark, handsome. She sounds striking. He. <laughs> he. You found another man, Amanda. Three. And so did I. I met man. My God, but this martini doesn't seem very dry. I must say you're taking it very well. So are you, obviously. <laughs> Bottoms up. I don't wish to hear the sort of detail. For a little while, we shall stand. You always had such a sweet voice, Elliot. Thank you, I know I'm going to cry. No, please don't. You'll ruin your makeup. It's your makeup. I wonder what happened to it. Oh, up yours. <laughs> Darling. No, please don't. You'll make my martini even wetter than it is. I suppose we shall never meet again. Not bloody likely. I've never stopped loving you, you know, not for a second. A third. I've had three. <laughs> go then, go, go, go and be happy, you and your small yellow husband. And you and your tall, dark and handsome husband. <laughs> go, I shall turn the other way. I don't wish to hear the sword in details. <laughs> when I turn back, you'll be gone. Gone with the wind. Suit yourself. <laughs> Waiter. Another martini. Very, very, very dry. Oh, it's hysterically funny, Barry. Um, and quite oh. saucy. Um, the beauty of the double entendre. Yes, of course. Which they love here because they, that's, you know, fun. Americans are still a little bit... Wet. I said in one of my plays, actually, I said, the English love talking about sex, but they hate doing it. Americans like doing it, but they hate talking about it. Um, it's... it's <laughs> uh, that, I think, was a surprise for them, certainly back when the review was done. It was, it was a nice and very successful show. You have a great love of motorbikes. Or oh, you did have a great love of motorbikes, didn't I you? I did. 
I miss it greatly, quite frankly. I, I was a motorcycle fiend. It led to disaster, of course, but um, uh, I, I miss my motorcycle very much. And I remember my great friend Stuart Wagstaff used to say, real stars don't ride motorcycles. And I always would quote Ralph Richardson, who rode one until he was nearly my age. Did he really? <laughs> right. Oh, yes, always. He always went on his motorcycle. He had a name for it. I think he called it Muriel or something like that. I called mine he, Bruce. What was the attraction? <laughs> Bruce. A motorbike called Bruce. What was the Bruce attraction Pike, yeah. of motorbikes? Was it the, the, the leathers? Was it the freedom? Was it? Oh, no, no, no. It's you're on the outside of the vehicle. It's like you traveling somewhere, not an inner, in something. That was the joy of motorcycling, the fact that you're on the outside of the vehicle. Um, it is a sense of wonderful freedom to feel the wind, to, to have air around you instead of sitting in an air-conditioned, uh, you know, closed car. I thought when I moved here from New York in uh, 30 years ago, I, oh, the weather I thought was wonderful. The first thing I thought of was, I'll get a motorcycle while I'm here. Then in the first week in the news, I think three or four people had been maimed or killed on highways here, but motorcycle hit by something that they didn't see coming. I thought, no, it's a car from now on. Well, I think it was in but Perth during the run of Corpse that, uh, that you was. indeed had a motorcycle accident. I did. I did. Um, I was, it was the final... The night, it was the Friday night, I think, the night before we closed in Perth, and we were due to go to Sydney next. And uh, I was on my way to the theatre. They had... The producers... I, I usually took my motorcycle with me when I was touring with a play in Australia, stuck it on the train and picked it up at the other end. Um, they said, no, it's, it's better if you get one when you're there. We don't want to travel a motorcycle. And I wished I had taken my own because I wouldn't have had the accident. But they, the Honda people gave me a dirt bike in Perth and they're really not very good on hard asphalt. And on the way to the theatre one night, doing no speed at all, the brakes locked, the bike tossed me on the road and came down on my right leg and broke my, my leg right above the ankle. Clean. Thank God it was clean. Uh, there, was no, there were no bits in there. So uh, that was the only performance in my life I've ever missed, I think. And that night, um, wonderful actor, I've just been in touch with again recently, called James Bean, was my understudy, and he went on that night. But I was um, in traction for a month, which is pretty depressing, let me tell you. And then in plaster for another six months when I got back to Sydney, and the first thing I did once the plaster came off was go out and buy another motorcycle, of course. Of course, as you but, do. <laughs> of course. Um, but at least one thing, one good thing came out of it. I had written a draft of the play Double Act, and it was sitting around on the computer doing very little because I was playing eight performances a week. And I asked them to bring all of my computer equipment into the hospital room. And in those days, in 1986, uh, that took up a lot of space. One nurse came in and looked for a plug to put something in for some equipment and couldn't find one. They're all taken up by computers and the printers and the monitor and everything. But I did another draft during that month that I was, I was um, in traction and refined it when I got back to Sydney and very happily Sandra Bates took it and dear God, what a, what a success it's been. I mean, it, the play's been done in more than 20 languages since then. Were you writing it in mind for you and Nolene? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That was my sole uh, purpose in starting it. I wanted to write a virtuoso piece for two actors like us, whose timing was good and who had a sort of uh, rapport on stage. Was there an and, influence of private lives? Oh, of course. I yeah. even quote that, quote those in the text. My two influences, which I do quote in the text, so nobody can pick it up 
saying I did it inadvertently, um, are Private Lives and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. They're both plays about incompatibility. Right. They're yep. plays about people who can't live with or without each other. It's been produced um, in, in more than 20 languages uh, yes, since around the world, which is Paris, Madrid, Canada. Yeah, it has. Of all of the productions I've seen, and there have been a lot of them, there have been mostly wonderful productions, um, I, I've got to say right at the outset, none has given me more satisfaction or more joy than the original that I did with Nolene. I mean, that was just, we both loved being there every night doing this play. Um, it was it was something we knew we were doing well, and the reviews were staggeringly good. I remember that the morning of Harry Kipax's review in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, I drove down to the newsagent from my, uh, my place was in Double Bay at that time, and I uh, got the newspaper, and I didn't dare open it until I got back to the house. And finally, sitting in the car, I opened it and read it, and it was so good, I burst into tears in the car. Um, but in London, the London production was a horror. It, the rights were bought immediately for London, and for New York as well. And I was doing two things in London at that time. I, I was directing a production of Nonsense in Dublin, um, and then I went to rehearsals as often as I could for double acting in London. And it was, in a way, it was taken away from me. I, I, it was cast against my better judgment. I knew exactly who I wanted in the cast. And they said, oh, no, 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 these are bigger names and they'll do better at the box office. And I was lumbered with an actress called Lisa Harrow and an actor called Simon Cadell. And Lisa Harrow had never played comedy. I swear to God, her lightest touch would have stunned a buffalo. <laughs> and Simon Cadell, as the, the awful, dreadful man who was so rude to me, um, had all of the gay insouciance of an open garbage can in this play. I mean, there was no charm at all. And it played, it played well out of town, but by the time it got to the West End, which is, you know, I was, I was so busy being Mr. Nice Guy, I, I, people kept saying, if you don't like it, you should pull the play, it's not working. And I thought, I've got to be Mr. Nice Guy, it's the West End, these are people, a lot of money, a lot of people are involved. And of course, I should have pulled the play because it closed after three weeks. But in those three weeks, the producer, who'd, who'd really steamrolled me into getting these people and I didn't care for, called up after the play had closed and said, I know we didn't vest uh, because we didn't play the required amount of performances, but um, I'm sure you'll give me the world rights, the foreign rights. I thought about this for about a day and called back and said no. I thought, I don't want him to screw it again. The day after that, I had a call from an agent in London and said, could I have the foreign rights? And I said, yes, go for it. And thanks to this agent, uh, it's been done in more than 20 languages. It's still on somewhere in the world. Uh, it's been revived twice, I think, in Rome. It, the, the Madrid production ran for a year. I saw the Berlin production, which I loved. I thought that I didn't understand it. Oh, there's one line I understood. And it's in the first act when he says, um, when she says about his new girlfriend, she points and says, is that her, the jailbait with the big tits? And in German, it came out as the jailbait mit den grossen titten. And I must say, I fell off my seat <laughs> laughing at that. <laughs> That's funnier than your writing. <laughs> Not long enough. Oh, wait a minute, you can't just. I mean, what is it, five years? Must be five years, you know. You haven't changed a bit. George. You remember my name? I'm hungry. I'd like to finish my dinner. Well, surely a couple of pleasantries won't ruin your appetite. You overestimate my intestinal fortitude. You underestimate my pleasantries. Okay, one pleasantry, and then I'm going back to my table. 
Been for a pee, have you? Come on, you haven't lost your sense of humour, have you? I haven't lost mine. You can't lose what you never had. <laughs> Divorce made a bitter woman of you, Alex. Divorce was too good for you. I should have castrated you. You did, my dear, often. <laughs> May I go now? My husband oh, will I be Oh, I heard you'd married again. What is it, three weeks ago? Four. Well, I'm sure it seems like three time flies when you're having fun. Goodbye, George. I hear he's a lot younger than you are. He's a little younger. Yeah, I'd love to get a look at him. You probably did. He's in the gent. <laughs> I think I stood next to him. Rather strapping. Yeah. yeah dark. Yeah. With a big uh, moustache. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he looked quite impressive. What about you? You couldn't possibly be here alone. Not after what I read about you in the gutter press. <laughs> Is that her? The jailbait with the big tits? <laughs> Pretty little thing, isn't she? A younger husband is one thing. Child molesting is another. <laughs> oh, she's overage. I've checked her birthmarks. I've seen her before somewhere. Playboy, Centerfold, July. You read Playboy? My husband reads Playboy. After only four weeks of marriage. He likes the article. An intellectual. I read them to him in bed. An illiterate intellectual. <laughs> Of course, when you see her in the flesh, which I do quite frequently, you realise that picture didn't do her justice. No, the staple covered a most interesting feature. <laughs> no, I really must be going. Likewise, Sandra and I think I'm being led astray by an older woman. Okay. We must do this again sometime. Perhaps in another five years. Keep smiling. Hold your breath. <laughs> oh, Christ. What? Don't move. Just for a minute, my bra strap just broke. <laughs> I didn't think you were wearing a bra. You're not supposed to. Go ahead. Now, don't touch me, just... Stay there till I find the end of the strap. Not if you're going to snap at me. <coughs> Why don't you go back to the loo? Please, George, I don't want my husband to see me like this. Well, a confirmed playboy reader like him? I should think he's seen nanneries in their every aspect. <laughs> Where is Kendall, anyway? Still in the bog, I hope. <laughs> Give me my bag. Should have been out of there ages ago. He was shaking it when I went in. <laughs> Give me the bag. At least I think that's what he was doing. <laughs> Perhaps he was trying to attract my attention. <laughs> you should be so lucky. Give me my bag. You and Nolene must be at a stage... Well, I know you're at a stage because you've gone on to work at the ensemble again in glorious and, and duets, magnificent performances, where you must be able to read each other's mind about what you're each doing oh. and what's about to happen. Oh, absolutely. I think that's very much the case. Um, uh, it's very seldom you find this rapport with anybody else uh, in the theatre. You must know that. You know, you've been at both ends of it yourself. Yeah. Um, if you do find it, it's, it's absolute gold. You hang on to it. You make it work. It's Nolan and I perform in, in a different way. Um, but together, we make sense of what we're saying. It's, it's a wonderful relationship. I, I wouldn't have swapped it for anything. We met in the review in, at the Philip Theatre in 1962. And, um, At a rehearsal one day uh, in, in Walk This Blonde? I, I don't think I was really... Maggie Dents I was aware of because I'd known her. Nolene was a newcomer to the thing, so was I. And it was not a good review. Uh, but Nolene, I, I just watched her and I thought, first of all, she's a baritone like me, which made great sense. So I thought, <laughs> that's, that's the first thing we've got in common. But uh, she was very, very funny, a very witty woman, and that I loved as well. I remember the first time, for instance, when we were doing a children's show at... Uh, the music hall a year later, uh, Beauty and the Beast, 
Uh, she played Beauty, I played the Beast, I should make that clear. Yeah, and uh, she saw me for the first time in tights and she said, you have no visible means of support. This was a, a very witty woman. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as it, you produ- you recorded, as we discussed earlier, two two great comic albums, the front and back flip side of Barry Creighton and Nolene Brown, yeah, and the yeah. not so wet and dry side of Barry That's Creighton right. and yeah. Nolene Brown. Let's have a listen to another track. I think I'll conduct a crusade. A what? A crusade. What kind of a crusade did you have in mind, Arthur? I'll bring faith to the people. That'll be nice. I'll turn off the telly then. I'll follow in the footprints of all them other big-time evangelists. That sounds real exciting. I've had a sign. This is my calling. In a minute I'm going to get out of this lounge chair and I'll go from door to door and I'll knock up the neighbours and show them the light. You're going out then, are you? In a minute. But this will be just a beginning. I'll inspire the masses with my oratory. Today, Waratah Parade... Tomorrow, the stadium. Who are you versing? Tomorrow, the stadium. The day after, the world. That'll be nice. I'll show them that they are miserable, suffering souls. I'll go amongst them and alleviate their pain. That'll be nice, Arthur. I'll be the most popular evangelist the world has ever known. You'll give the Rev Walker a run for his money. I must await my calling post-haste. You want me to pack a bag then, Arthur? Where'd I put my shoes? You've got them on. Oh. Where's my hat? You've got it on. Don't wait tea for me. You're going then, Arthur. Out to the world to show them that they not what for knowledge and wisdom. Better take your raincoat, Arthur. Oh? Why? It's teeming down outside. Oh, is it? Set in by the looks of it. Oh. Where'd I put my pipe? In your mouth, Arthur. Maybe I'll write a book. What kind of a book, Arthur? I'll write a book about a crusade. That'll be nice. So, Barry, you spent some considerable time in the United Kingdom, uh, in London. Tell us about that. I did, uh, it, it, but that came after I... Uh, at the end of Bramston, I did my own show for a year in Melbourne, the Barry Creighton Show. And it was the reason I went to London. I was suddenly, I was called, I was thought of as a personality instead of an actor. And that riled me somehow because I still thought of myself as an actor, but I hadn't had any opportunity to exhibit this to anybody. And I thought, at least if I go somewhere where I'm not known at all, um, I can start out as a working actor again. Well, that was the theory. Um, the uh, Barry Creighton show was directed by Dick Gray, who was the brother of Dolores Gray, the famous Broadway oh, yeah. star. Yep. And in fact, when I, when I first hit L.A., I stayed in Dolores' house. We became very good friends. And I saw her uh, in New York. I mean, I remember being her date when we went to a party at Joshua Logan's house. I mean, there were all those sort of posh things to do when I had the money. I went on to London and the money ran out very quickly. I did uh, um, a few shots in television shows like The Expert, I uh, Take Three Girls. Um, I did a review on stage uh, at the Mayfair Theatre. Um, then suddenly, the whole 10 years of national notoriety sort of fell in on me in London, and I had the, wor- the most awful nervous collapse completely out of, out of it for a year. 
Um, I had no, I was depressed, I couldn't work, I was a nervous wreck. Uh, um, you just lost confidence in yourself or? Totally, totally. Yeah. I, I think it was, it was the, the fact that suddenly, after 10 years of never having a private life, suddenly having a private life was too much to cope with. Um, I spent a year where I couldn't work, I wouldn't audition, I just, I just fell out of business, I lost my agent, I lost all the money. I took a job typing in a, a city hospital to keep make ends meet. I, but I must have been very grand even then because they called me Mr. Creighton and gave me an office all to myself. But while, <laughs> while I was there, during that office, in between letters I was typing for them, I wrote a farce um, called Dear Sir or Madam. And it was bought for production but never produced because it had a cast of 15. But it came to the attention of Ray Cooney who then commissioned a play from me, and I wrote a farce for him, which played well out of town, but it was the Margaret Thatcher three-day working week, so nobody had the money or the time to spend on getting it right for the West End. Was that Follow That Husband? Follow That Husband, yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was a cute enough piece. That was, that was really very encouraging to me as a writer, and not very prolific writer, but it encouraged me. But the guy who got me out of this awful funk I was in was, was the Australian director, Bill Redmond. And he was directing the national tour of Abelard and Eloise. And he called up and asked me if I would be in this. And I virtually was, was dragged to the first rehearsal by some friends I had at the time who said, you can't say no to this. And it really was the thing that restored all the confidence that I needed to get back into the, the game again. I was desperately ill at that time with everything that was going around, every cold, every flu, I'd lost weight. And that, of course, led to the, the, the health freak thing that I've observed ever since. And the daily going to the gym and all of those things. And, uh, and to this day, I'm still, you know, a health freak supreme. You've, you've still got the home gym? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Whole, whole room is devoted to the gym. And I'm in there five days a week. Um, even at this grand old age. <laughs> you know, they say, you know you're getting old when the candles cost more than the cake. Uh, well, it's, about, it's, about, after, it's no longer about aesthetics, is it, after a while? It's about maintenance. Yes, it is. It, it's about both, actually. I don't want to wake up one day and, I don't want to wake up one day and find my tits around my ankles. You know? <laughs> Who does? <laughs> but, uh, no, London turned into a good thing. I, um, you know, I, after that, I, I worked... I constantly worked. I was making more money than any of my contemporaries. I did a couple more reviews. I did two musicals with big numbers at the end of the first act in each of them. Uh, in fact, I, soon after, I remember my great friend at that time was the actress Miriam Carlin, and I was about to audition for uh, 1776. And I said, oh, God, out to Miriam, and I said, this is a real singing job. I've never had training of any kind. I've always faked it. Uh, she said, go to my teacher, Ernst Sternbach. He's the greatest in the world. He'll teach you everything you need to know before. So I went to see Ernst Sternbach, this very, very doer gentleman who sat back and watched me. And he said, uh, would you please do a scale for me, Mr. Creighton? So I did a scale. It was a long silence. And I said, do you think it's too late to start? He said, it's not too late to stop. <laughs> That was the extent of my singing lessons. So 1776 <laughs> didn't happen? It didn't happen, no. Uh, but it didn't stop me. I was, doing, I was doing a lot of work there. I did a regular part in a very well, uh, very popular radio serial called Wagner's Walk. 
I did. I, then I started uh, doing some announcing for uh, the BBC World Service. It was a thing a few actors that I knew did. They got me into it. And uh, it was a nice um, addition to an income. And I was, the, the money was very good. And if I was in a play at the same time, it was even better. I remember I was, I was doing Don's party at the Royal Court in London and rushing With down the great to the Michael Blakemore, wasn't it? Indeed, director, indeed. Yeah. The greatest director I will ever have worked with or ever will work with. And a great friend at that time as well. And I, didn't, I of course, did Noises Off for him back in Australia later on. But the announcing thing was wonderful. It was, in those days, it was strictly received pronunciation. You uh, couldn't deviate from that. You always had to sound like the BBC sounded in those days. And I passed muster and I did it very well. The only thing that happens if you're tired, having done two performances in a theatre, and then you rush down to do a night shift, is that you fluff lines here and there. You, you, uh, you uh, spoonerize was the most popular thing of fluffing. I wanted to do a book about the, they had kept a logbook of all the people who'd, who'd made all of these terrible errors. And the thing about the BBC World Service is that it was live, absolutely live. Nothing was recorded. Everything went down. So if you did a news bulletin, say, for the British news, it had to be exactly 11 minutes, not one second sooner or later than 11 minutes. And you, you really had to concentrate on what you were doing. If you were tired, I remember I, I referred once to uh, crossing the English Channel and I talked about cross flannel cherries. <laughs> cross, I talked about a bottleneck at an intersection of the M1. And on three occasions, I talked about the moniker Grand P. And on the third occasion, I remember the producer came to me and he just, just looked weird and he said, I wouldn't mind, he said, except that it conjures up such a terrible visual that some of the others that other announcers made deserve to be in a book. And of course, they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me put it together. One announcer talked about a criminal who was apprehended in a whore shop in Tishan. Um, <laughs> Another one started out saying, in Borneo, in Borneo today, armed elements attacked a government, and then stopped and thought for a moment, said, in Borneo, armed elements attacked a government building. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the announcers there were great fun, and one of them was a terrible practical joker. He would slip in a fake news item, you had to recognize that it was fake at that time, uh, so that you wouldn't go over all that, or you'd have to speed up to fit it in. He did this to me when I was very much a, a rookie there. And I started reading this and saw the look of horror on his face in the, in the booth. And I realized, oh God, I'm, this is a phony and I should stop. But it, it read, I should have known from the, right at the start, it said, today, veteran actress Dame Budvia Torso achieved a lifelong ambition by crossing the English Channel in a zinc bathtub. And at that point, I thought, this is a load of shit. And I put it down, but they reprimanded me for that. Um, the same man, I remember after I'd done two shows somewhere at the Duke of York's in the West End, and I was doing a night shift, and we read news items across a desk from each other. He would read one, I'd read one, and we'd read them about like that. He caught my eye as he started one item, just so that I'd be listening to it. And it started out, Today in typhoon-torn Manila, part of an old dike crumbled into the sea. Well, I fell under the desk laughing. And my item, my item that followed that was about a mass murder in Northern Ireland, and I couldn't speak for laughing. I thought I would be fired because of it. But they were great fun days. They were fun days. Surprised you survived. Yes, really. Can we talk about that production of Don's Party at the Royal Court? That would have been yeah. the, the first foray of the Williamson uh, in, in the UK. 
Uh, was it received well by audiences? It was, it was at the Royal Court, which is, you know, known for doing subversive things anyway. The thing was that they wanted, they aimed at, they wanted to go back into the West End after the Royal Court. And the curious thing about the play, which I absolutely loved, I've got to tell you, was that it was a little too commercial for the Royal Court, but not commercial enough for the West End. It sort of fell between those, those uh, guidelines and it, it played the Royal Court and then it, it went away. But I loved doing the play, and Michael's direction was just wonderful. I mean, terrific cast as well. Was it an um, Australian cast? Mostly. Uh, Ray Barrett played in it. I played okay. the, the posh one, the wine-tasting one, you know, the... the uh, Simon? Simon, Simon, yeah. yeah. Simon, yeah. Which I've got to add, I boast some of the best reviews I've ever had in my life, which was very flattering. Um, and one, uh, a couple of New Zealand actresses, one of whom I'm still very close to and very friendly with, called uh, Barbara Ewing, who is now writes historical novels. Very successfully, there are immense successes everywhere. And uh, that, that was, it was a wonderful season to be doing. I just love doing that play. Yeah. Um, you, as you said, you work with Blakemore again in Noises Off, which is, I, I think, one of the premium farces ever written. Uh, Noises Off is a comment on farce, which I think is, is, is what makes that work so well. You're standing outside a farce thinking, what is funny about these people playing a farce badly? It's a, it's a really brilliant play. It's, it's, it's quite well, all Michael Frayn's stuff is. I think he's a terrific writer. There's a wonderful story about that, which I should tell you. Yes, please. You know, Wags, Wagstaff was in the cast yeah. um, playing Lloyd, the director, and I played Freddie, the one whose pants are always falling down. And we opened in Brisbane, and there's an exchange... In Act Two, you know the play I expect. Absolutely. There's, a, there's an exchange in Act Two where I'm standing by the pass door and the announcement has been made to the audience. Uh, the performance will begin in one minute, then the performance will begin in two minutes, the performance will begin in one minute. And suddenly, Wagstaff is supposed to burst through the pass door into my face and say, what the fuck is going on? To which my reply was, great Scott, shocked. Well, he came to my dressing room on the first matinee in Brisbane and said, you know, I don't know if I can say that line. And for the, all those old women in the audience, they're all my fans. And I, I got up on really? a soapbox and I said, oh, yeah. I said, come on, Stuart, I'm big soapbox here. I said, you, this is Michael Frayn, one of the great writers. Of, and it's been directed by my, this was a play that's been done in Paris and London and New York. And you want to change a line? No, I don't think so. And finally he said, oh, I suppose you're right. And he left the dressing room. We got to Act One. We got to Act Two, and he leapt through the pastor and said into my face, "What the hell is going on?" And I said, "Great fuck!" <laughs> and then realized that <laughs> after that we couldn't look at each other. Of course, <laughs> that's hysterical. Hysterical. <laughs> of course, you had a big hit with Valentine's Day, which is a farce, also at the Marion Street. Yes, Crummel was was well. You know Crummel as well as I do. Uh, Never won for half measures. He used to, he'd call me, he called me up in LA one day and said, here are the dates, write something. Well, I did. That's, uh, you know, all the incentive I really need. And as I said, a farce had been brewing in my mind for a while. And as I said, I wrote the final scene. Did you see it, by the way? Did you see Valentine's Oh, absolutely. Day? Yeah, yeah. Maria Venuti have, and Nolene. That's and, uh, right. Donald McDonald. Yes, Donald's performance still is wonderful to me. He was so good in it. Maria was hysterical as well. But that was a joy because I had a, a cast around me that I absolutely loved. 
we enjoyed doing it and the audiences were over the moon about it. There's one, I have a recording of a performance. Tony Lamond was in the audience and I can hear her laughing throughout. I mean, screaming with laughter throughout. It's a great laugh. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> but that was, a, that was a joy. That one's been done in several languages as well. I think they revived it twice in Rome. Um, and somehow it works in Italian because it's all about the, you know, the, the under the subplot about the mafia and everything is all very Italian. You've been in the States since uh, 1989? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, full, full time, yeah. Uh, what, yes, what, I... what took you to the, the States and why, how have you landed there? Well, I, Double Act was bought, the rights were bought for here. And I thought I'll pop over and see what, what, you know, how serious they are about this. And I signed contracts and they said, yes, they wanted to move it into a Broadway theatre. And I kept saying, no, no, not a Broadway theatre, an off-Broadway theatre. I said, it won't work in a 2,000-seater. It needs a 500-seater at the most. It's an intimate play. And this argument went off until the rights expired. But by this time, I had written a screenplay, a movie of the week, which was bought by Hearst Television. And after three years in New York, I wrote a review, by the way, that, as I said, ran for two and a half years off-Broadway. I suddenly found I was living here. And uh, I came to L.A., to follow up on the, the screenplay I'd written for television and long meetings with the director and with the producers at Hearst. And it suddenly I was then moving from New York to, it, 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 it all happened really by accident, but I mean, here I am, I've been here ever since. It hasn't been the most productive period of my life, I, I don't think, but I don't know, the, the, I don't know, the older you get, the energy sort of wanes a little. Uh, I must say I'm as busy these days as I've ever been, but, but in different fields. For instance, when I was doing my show, The Barry Creighton Show in Melbourne, that was, uh, I rehearsed, I went to, flew to Melbourne on a Sunday, we rehearsed, I recorded five half-hour shows on a Monday, on the Tuesday we had a meeting about the following week, on Tuesday afternoon I flew back to Sydney and went straight to, from the airport to the Sesame Club and did a review I was doing for Frank Stray. I was doing six of those a week and doing the television show at the same time. When I was doing Noises Off, I was at the same time, eight performances of that a week, I was also writing an hour of Carson's Law every month and a sketch for the Mike Walsh show, which I then performed with Carol live every Monday. Tell me, is Britain fully equipped to handle a war? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We've got all those old ration cards. We're dying to get rid of them. <laughs> and of course, Mrs. Thatcher, at this very moment, all of your mighty warships are steaming towards the Falklands. Yes, it is. <laughs> Only one. Well, it may not sound like many to you, and of course it isn't, but we have commandeered some civilian craft. At this very moment, our troops are training in the Canberra. What about uh, ammunition? Oh, well, that's going off in the Britannia. <laughs> Why not? Uh, yes. How did the Queen feel about that? Well, she didn't like it terribly, but as I said to her, Betty, I said, you know, my dear, we're not going to hurt it. We're just going to turn your powder room into a powder room. <laughs> What about supplies? Oh, Dennis is taking the spam with his outboard. It seems to me, you know, Mrs. Thatcher, that uh, you're using a lot of second-hand equipment. I don't think Dennis would like to hear you say that. No, 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 no. 
I mean, second-hand ships, second-hand Well, that's aircraft. what I was saying. I, although, uh, Mr. Graydon, I wouldn't use the word second-hand. I would rather say pre-loved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are sending a few relics. Well, rather reconditioned um, craft. We've got three Spitfires, two Gypsy Moths, a B-52, and Vera Lynn. <laughs> Will she be entertaining? Oh, she'll do her best. <laughs> of course, there are a lot of bills still before Parliament. Uh, yes. What do you intend to do about the abortion bill? Well, I suppose we'll have to pay it. <laughs> the energy escapes me these days. I don't know how I did all this stuff uh, in those days. I, you know, it's it's oh, it's a matter oh, I of think it's I think it's maturity. I think it's maturity. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> the sign of a good night now is just being in bed by nine o'clock. That masterpiece theatre. Yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. Speaking of masterpiece theatre, I've got a soundbite here from a, a performance that you did recently with the LA Theatre Works, Tribes. Oh, I love Tribes. Yeah, these were the, the audio productions. I've I've done plays for them as an actor, and also I've directed for them as well. Uh, they um, approached me after I did the Snow White and thought, oh, this is the guy to do epics. So, I mean, they all gave me the Shakespeare's and they, they, I adapted and directed um, Cyrano de Bergerac for them. Terrific casts. But the, uh, the Tribes one, they brought the whole off-Broadway cast, uh, original Broadway cast, to LA to record this, as I said, in front of a, an audience. Um, and they lost the actor playing the husband to Mayor Winningham. And they called and asked if I would do it. I jumped at it because it's a wonderful play. And I, it was a very happy experience. And you've got that clip from it, which I absolutely loved. And that was taken during a, the, the intake of breath, which you understand why when you hear the clip, at the matinee was worth every minute of the time I spent on stage. Was that her? Yes, I think they're back on. Oh, Christ. Is he smoking pot again? I don't know. Which means yes, obviously. Fucking stupid. When is he going to move out again? Why am I surrounded by my children again? When are you all going to fuck off? Billy's only just got back from uni. No, I, I'm, I'm not talking about Billy. Billy's a pleasure. I'm talking about the parasites, Ruth and Dan. <laughs> Hurry up and start writing novels. You're also an established novelist, Barry. I've, I've been fortunate to read The Dogs of Pompeii and Nero Goes to Rome, which are beautiful stories about the dogs of Rome. Tell, tell me how that came about. You know, uh, um, my friend Vaughan uh, Edwards and I were in um, Italy. We went. I wanted to see Pompeii desperately. I'd never seen Pompeii. I'd read about it. I'd seen the pictures. And the thing that struck us, apart from the glory of the, the city that was, were all the stray dogs that lived in the ruins. Um, lovely, dusty mutts that were very friendly and lived on what you gave them. If you had a sandwich in your pocket, they'd go for that. And the guides kept them. And in fact, we discovered later that people, instead of taking them to the pound, if they didn't want the dog, where it would be put down, they took them and, and left them in the ruins of Pompeii, knowing that the tourists and the guides would, would look after them. And they were adorable dogs, dusty mutts that lived in little packs around the ruins. And one dog at lunchtime, uh, we had lunch after the first tour of the, the place, and this dog had the best begging act I've ever seen in my life. It came and put on the most mournful look I've ever seen in my life, the very slow wag of the tail. And we'd you'd do all the usual things like saying, oh, what a pretty dog and everything, until the waiter came and said, get out of here. And the dog would flee. It would wait around the corner until the waiter went, went inside again. Then he would come out and do the same act, table to table. 
And instantly we thought this would make a great yarn. And then we thought it was um, a children's novel or a young adult's novel. And we spent the two of us about six months writing the first one. And it was bought by R Random House in Australia and published by them first to terrific reviews. And there was talk of a screenplay, which I did, and that's still sitting on somebody's shelf. Um, and we wrote a sequel, Nero Goes to Rome. The, the joy of that was that we got to, to write, we went back to Pompeii to have a good look and do some more research. And um, there they all were, the dogs that we, you know, that we met before. It was wonderful. Nero Goes to Rome is the sequel. We have a third one, which was not published. And we're thinking if, if the movie rights are taken, we will publish the third as well. That completes this trilogy and solves the mystery that's set up in the first novel. What, <laughs> yes. what projects have kept you busy of late, Barry? Um, mostly writing. And, you know, the joy about writing is it's like radio and masturbation. You don't have to look your best. So it's... <laughs> uh, like being in the middle of a plague, you don't have to look your best. Um, I was encouraged to write a screenplay by British director, very celebrated British director, Warris Hussain, uh, based on a, uh, one of the productions he did for the BBC years ago. And um, I spent a lot of time writing that and have done many, many rewrites. And in fact, pre-production was supposed to begin this year. And Warris was on his way to fly out here to LA, where he was going to spend six months setting this up. And uh, the, the plague hit. And of course, he's locked in his house in London, as we are here in LA. So that's on hold. Meanwhile, another screenplay of mine, um, The View from Olympus Mons, is, um, is with producer Stephen J. Wolfe, who has done a lot of great movies. And there's immense interest in that. There, so I just hope to God I hear somebody shout action before I'm incontinent. Oh, I'm sure that will. I'm sure that you did say incontinent, <laughs> didn't you? I did say incontinent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, it has been absolutely fabulous to uh, to spend some time with you uh, today. A great joy. I know my listeners are going to be delighted hearing your voice once again. Oh, thank you. This has been a great treat just to talk to you apart from anything else. You've got to come over and see the new house sometime. Yes, I will. As soon as this COVID-19 disappears, it vanishes. Yeah. Or, or do you think it'll vanish? I think it might be around and it might be just an annual visitor, perhaps. There's a very interesting article in a recent Variety magazine which likens it to the 1980 flu epidemic, which was awful, as you know. But that came and went and then came back again. And this one probably will. Summer, we're having a heat wave here in LA at the moment. The numbers will go down during the heat wave and everyone will feel freer at the end of summer and then by autumn sure as hell it's going to come back there'll be two hits of it i think before we're done with it i expect it'll be the end of the year before people really start to loosen up about the whole thing uh but i tell you what going to the supermarket these days is like uh, has all the aspects of a ray cooney farce without the jokes you go there dressed like a bank robber creep around the arse not getting too close to anybody i mean, it's it's you know it's extraordinary and the deserted freeways the air in uh, la is cleaner than it's been in history i think well, perhaps some great plays will come out of this uh, this experience. <laughs> From your lips, let us hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Thank you, Peter. What a treat to have that access to the great Barry Creighton. 
It was a joy to finally catch up with Barry from a distance and record his brilliant history. I'm delighted that we've been able to record several conversations during the COVID-19 pandemic thus far. And I thank my guests and the available technology for making that possible. In order to keep you, the loyal listener, informed, enthused and entertained by always enlightening and essential stories of lives in the performing arts. Thanks for listening. As always, I'm Peter Eyes. Keep warm, keep well. I'll catch you next time.